There's just one thing we have to say. If you people didn't get the Holy Ghost after that, you ain't ever get it. Ma'am, when you sang Maker of Heaven and Earth, half the people at the church I attend in Winston-Salem would have been on their feet right then, just that. And we didn't even get to the I believe in the Holy Spirit. My Lord, what a morning. We better pray. You have sent your spirit upon us, dear God. And we are ever so glad. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Penniless, we own the world. I love the way the New English Bible translates that passage from the Apostle Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Paul writes those words with audacity and humility as if the Jesus way he is dispersing across the Mediterranean world really means something. Penniless? That's true. <laughs> Paul was always taking an, an offering just to stay afloat. He's the church's first great development officer. But we own the world? Is he kidding? Saul, a.k.a. Paul, a.k.a. St. Paul, is promoting audacious visions of grandeur before the church is barely out of the manger. It's the year 55 CE. Rome is the city on the hill. And Christians have about as much power in their world as a Democrat today in Texas. <laughs> and a Republican in Asheville. In fact, Paul's theological audacity knows no bounds. We avoid giving offense in anything. Paul. Paul. Your own letters, not to mention the book of Acts, indicate that sooner or later you offend just about everybody. Then comes the humility. We recommend ourselves in all circumstances by our steadfast endurance in hardships and dire straits, flogged, imprisoned, mobbed, overworked, sleepless, starving. Hold on, former prosecutor of the church. You said Christians own the world. And this is what they get for it. Imagine, Ben, putting that litany on the Myers Park Baptist Church webpage. Like this. Inspired by the bold and boundless hospitality of Jesus, we are open to all. Parentheses. BTW, if you join us, 
there's a real possibility you could endure hardships and dire straits and maybe even be flogged, imprisoned, mobbed, overworked, sleepless, starving. Have a blessed day. Audacious, isn't it? Paul won't let it go. And suddenly, audacity and humility have a head-on collision as he sums up the enigmatic gospel of the body of Christ, the church. We recommend ourselves, he says again, by the innocence of our behavior. You only want to keep your bulletins open just in case you doubt whether I'm telling you the truth this morning. The grasp, our grasp of truth, our patience and kindliness, by the gifts of the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by declaring the truth, by the power of God. Frankly, I find that kind of language and action is already on the MPBC webpage. Thank God. Today, Juneteenth Sunday, 2021, can we recommend ourselves by the innocence of our behavior, our grasp of truth, patience, kindliness, our experience of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, our sincere love, and our declarations of the truth. Excuse me. All held together by the power of God. Can we do that? Today, that audacious little list of profound gospel graces is why I think the world still needs the church needs us to try and live out those graces right in front of everybody, whether some folks ever find their way to the church at all. A spirituality and a praxis that embodies that audacity, humility, and the humanity of the gospel. In his 1968 book, Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander, Thomas Merton, Trappist Trappist monk and writer extraordinaire, recounts a day in Louisville at the corner of Fourth and Walnut when he realized that it is a glorious destiny to be a member of the human race though it is a race dedicated to many absurdities and one which makes many terrible mistakes. Yes, with all that, God glorified in becoming a member of the human race. To think that such a commonplace realization should suddenly seem like news that one holds the winning ticket in a cosmic sweepstake. I have the immense joy of being human, a member of a race in which God became incarnate. Yet Merton called his text 
the conjectures of a guilty bystander. Like St. Paul knew firsthand, as we all do, that some of our behavior isn't innocent. Sometimes we don't quite grasp the truth, let alone declare it. Sometimes our love isn't all that sincere. Times when gospel audacity, humility, and humanity escape us. June 19, 1865, a date long remembered and observed by black communities was the day when Union troops arrived in Galveston, Texas, of all places. With news of the 1963 Emancipation Proclamation and the, and the, the 1863 Emancipation Proclamation and the 1865 13th Amendment. The truth of freedom had been kept from Texas slaves for two long years. Yesterday, June 19, 2021, the President of the United States signed a law making that day a national holiday. In 1865, no American, black or white, would have conceived of such a thing. No, that legislative action won't cancel out the racism that still consumes us. But it is now a national reminder of where we've been and will not, must not go again, whatever form racism may morph into or attempt to. Today, I am deeply grateful to Reverend Dr. Ben Boswell for inviting me to preach on this Juneteenth Father's Day Sunday. That's the first time, Ben, I've had occasion to give you that audacious but duly humble identity. Come on, come on. Congratulations, Reverend Doctor. Well deserved. I'm also grateful to Ben, without knowing it, actually, for inviting me to preach because, as he said, today is the 50th anniversary of my ordination to the gospel ministry. I'm partly, I'm particularly grateful to celebrate that life moment in this congregation, which has formed my sense of self and spirituality dramatically across at least 30 of the, those 50 years. See, y'all did get the Holy Ghost. <laughs> Hence this personal Juneteenth reflection. This year, I was asked to participate in a committee studying the slavery-related slavery origins of Wake Forest University, where I taught for some 22 years. Specifically, evident in the life of Wake's third president, Washington Manley Wingate. Amid the depths of his genuine moral and spiritual sanctity, Wingate was professor, president of the school, and pastor of the Wake Forest Baptist Church. 
He was also a slave owner. Records from the list of members revised of the Wake Forest Baptist Church, January 1865, document that among colored males who were baptized church members was Wingate's Isaac. Colored females included <clears throat> Wingate's Hannah, Wingate's Jenny, and Wingate's Charlotte. Their master-slave connection was so all-encompassing that even membership in the body of Christ was defined by their reverend owner's name. Pastor Wingate and the Baptist culture that encompassed him interpreted the Bible, particularly the writings of Paul, so as to grant pastor and congregation divine permission to physically own and spiritually unname their black brothers and sisters in the fields and in the church. Personally, The Wingate research hit me hard. I have spent over 40 years studying the history of Baptists, black and white, through slavery and abolition, Jim Crow and civil rights, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, along with salvation and damnation aplenty. I taught at both the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, 1855, now in Louisville, and Wake Forest University, 1834, first in Wake Forest, North Carolina, now in Winston-Salem. Both slavery-born schools with chapels named for slave owners, yet enigmatically, the only two Southern Baptist-related schools to invite Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. to preach in their sacred environs, 1961-1962. The catharsis of all those years of study struck me when I began to type, when, uh, when I began typing, the words Wingate's Isaac on my portion of the Wake Forest University report. And without warning, I started weeping. For weeks, actually this is the first time I've been able to say that out loud and not break into tears. I hope I always will. So this, this very Juneteenth Sunday morning, 2021, I want simply 
in this sacred space to speak their names free and clear. You can say them too, if you wish. Hannah. Jenny. Isaac. Charlotte. And I wonder what I may be believing or living out right now. That someone might stand in this pulpit in a century or so and weep, calling me out because I spent 50 plus years an ordained minister and still didn't grasp the truth enough to see the gospel right in front of me. Paul finishes up today's restless text by pushing the gospel enigma to its limits, writing, honor and dishonor, praise and blame are alike our lot. We are the imposters who speak the truth, the unknown ones whom everyone knows. Dying, we still live on. Disciplined by suffering, we are not done to death. In our sorrows, we always have cause for joy. Poor ourselves, we bring wealth to many. Penniless, by God, we own the world. Those words describe the paradox of Christ's gospel, whether in the year 55, 1865, or 2021. Honor and dishonor, praise and blame are alike our lot, aren't they? And that's why this morning, thank God, We can gather round the enigma of the gospel through the enigma of jazz. A form of music that burns its way from the depths of what Paul called hardships and dire straits. The music of the human condition where honor and dishonor, praise and blame cohabitate in destruction and creativity in unoriginal sins and miraculously original celebrations. What James Baldwin in The Fire Next Time called a life force that is in all jazz and especially in the blues, something tart and ironic, authoritative and double-edged. Today, let's go back to Baldwin and his wonderful short story entitled Sonny's Blues, in which a man tells 
of his brother named Sonny, a jazz pianist and a heroin addict, struggling to reconnect with the, bu- with the music inside himself, a passion even stronger than heroin. They turn up at a local bar where the guy's group, former group, starts playing jazz. And where Creole, the leader of that jazz group, compels Sonny to play. And that's when Baldwin's overwhelming prose rivals that of St. Paul as the two texts merge. The little jazz group starts playing the tune, Am I Blue? And Baldwin writes, And as though he had been commanded, Sonny began to play, and something began to happen. They all came together, and Sonny was part of the family again. Then Creole stepped forward to remind them that what they were playing was the blues. He hit something in all of them. He hit something in me, myself. And the music tightened and deepened. Apprehension began to beat the air. Creole began to tell us what the blues were all about. They were not about anything very new. He and his boys were up there keeping it new at the risk of ruin, destruction, madness, and death in order to find new ways to make us listen. For while the tale of how we suffer and how we are delighted and how we triumph is never new, it must always be heard. There isn't any other tale to tell. Baldwin writes, it's the only light we've got in all the darkness. Today, Juneteenth Sunday, Father's Day, and a yellowed out ordination certificate got all wrapped up in a gospel passage package by an amazing jazz ensemble. Today, we've been confronted by Paul, Hannah, Jenny, Isaac, Charlotte, and a piano player named Sonny, every one of whom recommends themselves by their steadfast endurance in hardships and dire straits. Today, we know it is indeed enigmatic, paradoxical, downright messy, this good news Jesus brought us. Like jazz, it's never new. 
but it must always be heard. Fifty years after those Texans laid hands on my head and sent me out to do whatever I've been doing for half a century, I do not own the world. But I've still got a Jesus tale or two to tell. The strongest light I've found in all the darkness. Play it again.